passage today comes from Luke chapter 2, verses 39 to 52. And we are arriving today at the end of Luke's introduction to this orderly gospel account that he is writing. We have heard from a series of witnesses throughout these opening couple of chapters. So far we've heard from angels, from a priest, from shepherds, a widow, Mary, others, We've heard their words, we've heard their testimony, we've even got to hear what they were thinking and feeling when Christ came into into the world, their understanding of who he was and what kind of purpose he was sent to accomplish. Well, today we get to hear for the very first time from Jesus Christ himself, the very first recorded words of the incarnate Son of God. So with the Lord's help, turn your hearts with me as I read Luke chapter two, verses 39 to 52. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. If you look at the structure of this text, you'll see that the passage is bookended by uh, first verse 40 and then again in verse 52 with the idea of Jesus's growth and the favor of God being upon him. That, that's the, the big overarching idea in this particular section and, and it frames the way the rest of the passage is to be understood. Now, 
we read this passage and there is a crisis in the story. There's no small amount of confusion and misunderstanding. There are a, a whole bunch of surprises along the way. But from the divine perspective, Jesus's progress in his intellectual, his physical, his spiritual growth is pleasing in the sight of God. That's the big idea. Now, this passage, nevertheless, does bring us to a period of Christ's life that presents us with all kinds of questions. We, we have all kinds of uh, curious things that come into our mind as we think about what Jesus must have been like as a child, his early childhood years. What would it have been like to parent the Son of God? Or to have the Messiah, young people, as a sibling. Think about that. Of course, the Bible does not entertain any of that. It doesn't entertain a single one of those questions because as we've already seen throughout this gospel narrative, the purpose of God's word is not to feed our curiosity. What is its purpose? It is to inspire faith. It is to point us to Jesus Christ, to point us and encourage us toward faith in the Son of God. And so that's where Luke focuses all of our attention, not on entertaining tidbits. You know, some of the Gnostic Gospels do that very thing. They try to come up with all sorts of interesting, entertaining stories about Jesus' early childhood years. That is not what the inspired scripture do. It focuses our hearts and minds on the unique calling and purpose Jesus Christ had, one that was obviously evident in his own self-understanding from a very early age. And so with very little fanfare, we come to this significant turning point in Jesus's life where he is 12 years old. According to tradition, Jewish boys became an adult. They were considered to be a man at 13 years old. That is the time when they were uh, held formally accountable in their observance of the law. And so the Christ child is at the cusp of this, this significant period of time in his life, both in terms of the cultural and societal expectations and in what the Lord is preparing him for, to save humanity for himself. So it's a time where we find Jesus for the very first time actively involved in God's eternal saving purposes. We see Jesus giving witness both to his divinity and to his humanity. We see him speaking with authority about his purpose and his mission. It's the only episode that we have between the birth accounts and the start of his ministry, about 30 years old. But for a brief second, Luke kind of pulls back the curtain and he gives us this preview of what is to come some 18 years or so later. It's like watching a preview for a movie that hasn't been released yet. You get to see just a snapshot of what Jesus has come to do. Now, verse 41 starts with a little bit of background. It says that his parents, Christ's parents, went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. 
Passover was one of three uh, feasts that Jewish men were required to attend annually. Uh, You know, Passover was uh, designed by God, designated by him to commemorate the Lord's liberation of his people Israel out of the land of Egypt. You remember when the 10th plague came in uh, upon the land and the angel of death swept through the land of Egypt, God told his people to to take the blood of a lamb and to smear it on the two doorposts of their homes and and over the lentils and he would pass over those who did, who put their faith in the promise of God's word. In Deuteronomy chapter 16, God commands his people this. He says, observe the month of Abib and keep the Passover to the Lord your God. For in the month of Abib, the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt by night. And you shall offer the Passover sacrifice to the Lord your God from the flock or the herd at the place that the Lord will choose to make his name dwell there. What place did God choose? That would turn out to be Jerusalem, where the temple was. And it is there that we find Joseph and Mary walking in steady obedience to the will of God, going up to worship year after year to remember the grace of God, the grace that he had shown to their fathers. It says uh, that this, this was their custom as a family. They went up every year. Now, as I said a moment ago, men were required to go. Women and children could go, but as you can imagine, that would often be a a tremendous encumbrance upon families, a great financial expense. They could go, but men had to go. What do you see here? You see Joseph and Mary, their family going. They are going above and beyond the call of duty. We know that Jesus had a good number of brothers and sisters, at least six Uh, He was the oldest of at least seven. So this would have been uh, quite an undertaking, especially if they took all of them. You think about the distance that they were traveling. This would have taken a number of days, probably three, four, five days for them to travel from Nazareth to to Jerusalem to, to, to participate in the feast. The feast would last for a week there and then to make the journey back home again. And so you have altogether about two weeks of time given over to the worship of God. They come from a relatively poor working class family. We've seen that. So this would have been a major expense. It would have been a a significant sacrifice. Now, brothers and sisters, put all of that together. and, And what kind of picture does this paint? What does this tell you about their family? Here's a family that loves God. It's a family that loves the Lord. They have made the worship of God a priority. They take the word of God seriously. If there is one thing that I could draw out and just impress upon your hearts and minds here, I want you to, to, to just mark this in your minds. Here's a, a family where attention to the worship of God is a non-negotiable It's a non-negotiable in their life. There was never a question in their minds as to whether they would go up 
and worship the Lord or not. They never sat around on the floor and said, you know, spring is rolling around. Should we go up this time? That was never a question that had to be raised. It was simply taken for granted that when a bee rolled around, we go up as a family. We worship the Lord. So there was a command there that was... um, that that, uh, Joseph would have been beholden to, but then we have a custom as a family where they all go up, they all worship together. Now, can customs become rote? They can, certainly. But there is nothing wrong with custom in principle. In fact, custom can be the very thing that signals to the whole family, here's what really matters. Here's what is really of the the, the highest importance to our family, over and above everything else. So you can just read these first couple of verses, and and thus far, the story is fairly unremarkable, and yet it's highly instructive at the same time. You have a family that has dedicated themselves to the worship of God and the ordinary, ordinary means of grace going to the the temple, the assembly of the saints, offering the sacrifice of praise. Now we get to verse 43, and it says that when the feast was ended, as as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. And then you have the, the ominous words, his parents did not know it. Bad news. Now, the, the text explains for us that this was not dereliction of duty on Joseph and Mary's part. They weren't bad parents. They figured that he was with the rest of the group, with this caravan. In, the, in those days, typically, you'd have a large group. They'd all be traveling together, probably all from the same town, making their way up to Jerusalem and then going back down, back to home. And you can, I think, imagine the scenario here. Joseph is walking along. He, he doesn't see Jesus. What does he assume? He's with mom. Mom doesn't see Joseph. She thinks, oh, he's off with dad. He's playing with with the little ones. At the end of the day, they come together. They start to set up camp. They look at each other. Uh, Where's Jesus? I thought he was with you. I thought he was with you. And you can imagine the, the sense of panic beginning to set in, the lump in the throat, that sinking feeling. Well, they have to wait through the whole night before they can even begin to think about returning back to Jerusalem and finding where their 12-year-old boy is. There's nothing worse than losing a child. I want to ask for a show of hands this morning for how many of you have ever lost one of your children. But you can imagine, I trust, what this must have been like. They decide they have to make an about face. They go back to Jerusalem after the night is over. Verse 46 says that it was after three days 
They found him in the temple. Probably that covers the, 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 the day's journey going out, the, the day returning back to, to Jerusalem, and then probably a whole day of searching around, trying to find them. Now, where do they find him? In the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking questions. And it says that when his parents saw him, they were astonished. So you have something of a double surprise here. Not only are Joseph and Mary surprised to find their son missing, they're surprised to discover that he didn't just get lost. He was rather quite at home. He isn't wandering around looking for his parents. He isn't distraught. He's sitting with the teachers. He's listening to them. He's asking them questions. Young people, I want to encourage you to, well, let this be an encouragement to you today, not to go wandering off from your parents without telling them where you are. But look at what held Christ's attraction. Look at where the interests of Jesus were at 12 years old. Look at what he found alluring and delightful. They were in spiritual things. They were in the things of God. That is where Jesus' interests were. Where did he find fellowship? It was with those who were older and wiser than him. Where did he want to spend time? It was with his elders. Now I think you can see where I'm going with this. You have a great opportunity in this fellowship to sit and visit and ask questions with those who are older than you and have much more time in the Lord than you do. And so I want to offer just a friendly uh, pastoral exhortation to you today. By the time that you are 12 years old or so, you need to be thinking about following in Christ's footsteps in the way that we see outlined here. You need to think about spending time with godly men and women. Don't spend all of your time with your peers. Keep company with the wise. The Bible says whoever walks with the wise becomes wise. Do you desire to be wise? During our fellowship meals, take time to sit at tables with spiritual mothers and fathers. If you don't have questions to ask, just sit and listen. Listen to what they're talking about. Proverbs 18 and verse 15 says, an intelligent heart acquires knowledge and the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. You you see that there's a pursuit there. There's an activity in the pursuit of wisdom and knowledge. Proverbs 19 and verse 20, listen to advice and accept instruction that you may gain wisdom in the future. Job 12 and verse 12, wisdom is with the aged and understanding in length of days. By God's grace, he has given some uh, to us in this fellowship who are in the category of the aged, who have length of days. Praise God for that. You need to avail yourself of that. That is a blessing given to you. 
Now, it is, it's surprising enough to find Jesus, a 12-year-old boy, among the teachers, but then you get to verse 47 where it says, and all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. So Jesus isn't just an ordinary 12-year-old boy. He isn't just asking questions. He's providing the answers. He isn't just a part of the audience. He has an audience of his own. He is teaching the teachers. All who heard him were amazed. So you have here in flesh and blood the embodiment of Psalm 119 verses 99 and 100. I have more understanding than all my teachers for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged for I keep your precepts. And so when the Bible says to us that Joseph and Mary found Jesus sitting in the temple among the teachers, there is bound up in that more than just a description of where he was found. There's more than just a physical location there. To say it another way, this is not just where Jesus was found, it's where he belongs. He is the consummate rabbi. He is the teacher of teachers. Now, that doesn't take away in any way from Mary's angst. And you can see it there in the text. She says, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Now, you know well and good, it's never good when you hear the words, your father and I. But in all honesty, it's the same thing we want to know, isn't it? Why didn't Jesus give his parents a heads up? Isn't this somehow uh, uncalled for on some level to wander off without at least letting his parents know? Well, no. In a not so subtle way, Luke is introducing this theme that we're going to see played out in a variety of ways in the life of Christ and in the life of those who follow after the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's this, that devotion to God supersedes all earthly relationships. Devotion to God supersedes all earthly relationships, even familial ones. You remember what it says in Mark chapter three. His mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him, And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. And it's the same principle already at work in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ at 12 years old that we see in our text. You can see it in his response in verse 49. He says, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's 
house, the very first recorded words of Christ. There is a holy insistence on Jesus's part that he can do no other but be in the Father's house. So this is not an act of disrespect. It's not a rebuff to his parents. It is a kind of clarion declaration that says, here is where I belong. Here is where my ultimate allegiance lies to my heavenly Father. Now there are at least two important things to note in Jesus' response to his parents. The first is his filial connection to the Lord. Jesus highlights his personal relationship as a son to the heavenly father. Jesus is the son of God. He speaks of God as his father, which if you can set yourself in this scene, immediately cast into sharp relief this contrast between Jesus' earthly father and his heavenly father, which in turn prompts a number of questions. Well, who is his father? To whom does Jesus owe his fidelity? And the answer is right there in the text. It's emphatic. He says, I must be in my father's house, referring not to Joseph, but to the Lord Most High, to his heavenly Father. Now, friends, this is an astounding claim. It's an astounding thing for Jesus to say, I must be in my Father's house. Moses built the tabernacle. David uh, wanted to build the temple. He, uh, that, that opportunity was not given to him. It was given to Solomon. Solomon had the privilege of constructing it, but none of those men ever dared to put things into these kinds of terms, to say, this is my father's house. But from an early age, Jesus' self-understanding points to this. It, it points to his personal relational connection to the heavenly Father. It leaves no doubt as to his divinity. Now, we're very accustomed uh, today to thinking about God as our Father. And praise God that we can speak of him in those kinds, uh, th- that kind of uh, intimate, uh, close, familial kinds of terms. Uh, Jesus taught us to pray in that way. Our Father, who art in heaven. But that kind of language, that level of, of intimacy was not known at this time. In fact, this was the very thing that incited uh, the Jews all the more to, to kill Jesus, the Bible says, because he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. They understood the claim. They understood what Jesus meant when he called God his father. So you have this relational connection to the heavenly father. Second, we see his absolute devotion to the father. Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? I must. The word house is not there 
in the original. It has to be supplied. Some of you may have the word business in your Bibles. I must be about my father's business. House is probably a better translation. Joseph and Mary, if you look at the context, they're wondering not what Jesus is up to, but where he is. That's the context. They're searching for him. Jesus says, I must be in my father's house. Literally, it is, did you not know that I had to be in my father's? Now, if I were to tell you today, I'm going to my father's, you would understand what I meant by that. You would understand that I was saying I'm going to my father's house. And this is where Christ says he has to be. He has a sense of compulsion and a necessity of commitment to his father's house and to all that it represents, the center of God's gracious activity among man. Jesus knew from an early age what he had been called to. He understood the divine mandate that was upon his life. He understood this was something he had no choice but to give himself to. I want to read to you from John chapter 6, Jesus' own words. This is John chapter 6, verses 35 to 40. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Beloved, do you see what the scriptures are saying? It is good news for sinners that Jesus said, I must be in my Father's house. It's good news that Jesus said, I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me, that he always does the things that are pleasing to the Father, or else Jesus would never have set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem. If that was not the case, he never would have prayed, not my will, but thine be done. He never would have gone to the cross, but he did. Luke tells us here that Joseph and Mary did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. They were as bewildered by what they heard, by what Jesus said, as they were astonished to find him there in the first place. Now we might think to ourselves, well, why? Why was that the case? Given all that they had already seen, you think about the the angelic announcement. You think about their own witness. You think about their readiness to receive uh, the good news about what Christ's birth meant for humanity, for the redemption of sinners. Why do they seem so dense now? Well, friends, 12 years have gone by. 12 years of normalcy, 12 years of routine. 
So while on one level they have acknowledged his mission, they've rejoiced in what his coming means, there's also an element of mystery here that not even his own parents can understand. Jesus' own disciples had difficulty understanding who he was, what he had been sent to do. Even after the resurrection, uh, Jesus appears to his disciples on the Emmaus Road. What does he say? Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And so let us, let Joseph and Mary and the disciples be a warning and a lesson to us today. Don't read verse 50 and think to yourself, hmm, they didn't understand it. When Luke inserts that comment for us, there is an implicit invitation for the reader. There's an implicit invitation for us to ask ourselves, what did they miss? What would it mean for me to understand the saying? What would it look like to grasp in the heart what Jesus said? He said, I must be in my father's house. In Hebrews chapter three, it says, Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And there it's not talking about the temple in Jerusalem. The writer goes on, he says, and we are his house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. In other words, listen to the witness of the scriptures. Hear the word of the gospel. Cling to the hope that is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ will be faithful over God's house, which is to say he will be faithful over your body, which is the temple of the Holy Spirit. He will carry you from regeneration all the way through to glorification. You cling to the hope that you have in him. Long before Jesus' work was finished, you can see his chief concern was to be doing the will of the Father. I want you to hold that idea in your mind. His chief concern, doing the will of God, I must be in my Father's house. Now while you're holding on to that, look at verse 51. And he went down with them, with his parents, and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. This is remarkable. All children are to be submissive and obedient to their parents, but that Jesus was is especially noteworthy. Jesus was submissive both to his heavenly father and his earthly parents. Young people, obedience to your heavenly father includes submission to your earthly parents. Colossians 3 and verse 20 says, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Obey your parents in everything. Why? Because this pleases the Lord. 
somewhere around 12 years old is usually when you can expect young people to begin to ask questions that they didn't ask before. Things that you just took for granted because your parents told you they were the case until you get to that age. You begin to think for yourself. You begin to to ask questions. That's okay. That's to be expected, but it's important that you work through those things in a way that honors the parents that the Lord has given to you. Jesus was the very son of God, yet he submitted himself to imperfect, sinful parents who at times surely failed him. How was he able to do that? He recognized the authority God had given them and determined to honor the Lord by submitting to them. He understood that the authority God had given to Joseph and Mary was God-ordained authority. He said, I want to please the Father, my heavenly Father, and so I'm going to submit myself to my earthly parents as well. And so for now we see Jesus returning to Nazareth, And he goes to live with his earthly parents. And again, it says that his mother treasured up all these things in her heart, something that again bids us to do the very same thing, to take the self-revelation of God, to meditate on it, turn it over in your heart and mind, mull on it, chew on what God has said here with the Spirit's help. Well, church, if verse 49 uh, emphasizes Christ's divinity, verse 52 stresses his humanity. It says that Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Jesus didn't come into the world with a fully developed brain or body. He grew up into maturity the same way any of us do. His faculties took time to develop. But as the years progressed, he used those faculties, he he used the capabilities that the Lord had given him to the glory of God. He sought to steward those God-given faculties. He increased in wisdom. Job says, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil, that is understanding. And we've seen that lived out already just in this passage in the way that Jesus listens, in the way that he, he asked questions and sought counsel. He grew in stature. That's talking about physical growth. He was a steward of his physical body. He increased in favor with God and man. Proverbs 3 says, My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace They will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Our Savior was fully man. If that was not the case, he would not be able to be the Savior that we need. Listen to what Hebrews 2 says. Hebrews 2, verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered 
When tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Are you being tempted today? You are. Who are you fleeing to? What hope are you looking to? Hebrews 5, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. We can praise God today for the favor that he placed on the life of his son, that through Christ's perfect obedience, through his atoning death, sinners like us can be saved. We can be saved. It is because Christ's faithfulness, his faithfulness over God's house, that forgiveness of sins is available to us today. That we can become new creations. That we can be sanctified, made more and more into the image of Christ. That there is an eternal weight of glory being prepared for us. Christ is faithful. Let's pray. O Lord, our Lord, thank you that in Christ we can call you our Father. Lord, we give you praise for your perfect will. God, we worship you and esteem your name for the perfect obedience of your Son, for his total commitment to that will, that today he is faithful over your house. God, I pray that all of our trust would be in him. Lord, I pray that you would grant grace to every soul that is here today, that we might follow hard after him. Lord, that you would give us that same sense of necessity uh, to have that compulsion that we can do no other uh, but to follow after our Savior that we would glory in the cross of Jesus Christ, Lord, that we would be a light shining in the darkness, that we would live lives of purity and holiness. We ask this all for the sake of your name. Amen.